Hello, and welcome to the Previously Learned podcast with myself, James Shaw, and Michael McLaughlin. Life doesn't come with a manual, and the premise of Previously Learned is following the loss of close family is to pass on some life lessons to our respective children. Issue being, we've only lived our lives so far, so why not get some lessons from other people that have been there, done that, and got the t-shirt. If you like the podcast, please remember to subscribe, like, and follow. It really does make a big difference. On this episode of Previously Learned, we were joined by Sarah Furness. Sarah is a former RAF combat helicopter pilot and has served various operational tours. She is the author of Fly Higher, a book on mindfulness strategies for improved self-leadership. Sarah is also a renowned speaker and mentor. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Previously Learned. Uh, so Sarah, welcome to Previously Learned podcast. Thank you very much for coming on. So you were 20 years as a RAF uh, combat pilot tours to Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, you're an author of Fly Higher, which is Mindfulness Strategies for Self-Leadership, Speaker and Mentor. How did you end up doing what you're doing? Was it something you always planned to do? Um, so I, it all started with Top Gun when I was 12 and I watched Top Gun Excellent. and um, and decided that I wanted to be a pilot. And um, my parents... Uh, never tried to talk me out of it. In fact, they were quite supportive. Um, and I think that's probably quite an important thing is that, you know, no one put any barriers in the way. Um, so after I went and joined the Air Force um, and did that for 20 years, and then towards the end um, of my time in the Air Force, I kind of discovered mindfulness. I thought it was the most amazing thing ever. It really sort of helped me. So I wanted to help other people. Um, and that's what prompted me to... Um, change direction and set up my company and write the book and then become a speaker so so yeah though that that but it all started um with that with that movie basically so uh you, you say like your parents didn't talk you out of it but how did they feel when you said to let right because you're at Cambridge right before yeah yeah I mean obviously we're going back you know so when I was you know quite young obviously 12 years old um I think I think it helped. My dad had been in the Air Force. He left when I was a baby, so I wasn't brought up, you know, in the forces. But I think he was, um, you know, happy about the idea that, you know, that I might join. And he was the one that said, well, if you're interested in this kind of thing, you might want to join the Air Cadets. He took me along to the Air Cadets when I was 13. So he was pretty supportive. And my mum just had this amazing quality that she just believed in her children and just, you know, whatever we want to do, she just... She just knows that we can do it, basically. So um, I think she was just, she was the one that um, was, you know, good at dreaming. Um, and my dad was quite good at the practicalities of like, okay, well, these are some useful um, things that you could do to actually um, bring that dream to life. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, like, the difference, you're saying that, the difference between my parents. I mean, like, I used to have a toy aeroplane growing up and my mum put a cork on the end of it so I didn't take my eye out. So the different, like, like complete over opposite. But uh, yeah, that might it might be more implicit to do the children, James, uh, possibly. So, what are you getting at, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're right. I mean, and I know sometimes I feel like today's parenting, in particular, you know, you're failing as a parent if you have any risk, um, if you don't eliminate all risk. But I think my parents had quite a high risk tolerance um, and they were quite, um, they were quite, you know, happy for us to go off and go and do adventures. I think it helped that I was a twin. So I always had a, a wingman with yeah. me. 
they did. They absolutely did sort of let us go out and explore things in, in a way that probably kids don't have the same freedoms that they that we used to. Yeah, no. Yeah, definitely. that classic uh, being let to go out until the streetlights came on. I, I kind of remember that was something, as my mum always used to sort of say, coming down. I'm sitting there. Well, I've got an 11 and a nine-year-old, and I'm sitting going, should they be out? Should they be out? Especially where we live, it's not exactly easy or friendly for them to go and play but yeah mm. risk as a parent that could be an interesting uh, that's a whole topic in itself yes so growing up can you remember any advice or anything that you heard that actually just resonated and is stuck with you yeah i do remember um i remember when i was trying to decide what well there were hires and six year studies because I was brought up in Scotland but let's call them eight levels um Yay. I remember I was trying to work out what to study and um I was refocused you know from the age of 12 I was incredibly serious and I was so laser focused on being in the RAF and being a pilot and I remember speaking to my teachers and saying look what should I study what's going to help me be a pilot what's going to help me get in and and all the rest of it and one of the teachers said I think you should study what you enjoy um, and try not to sort of overthink it. And I think that was really good advice. Um, and, you know, I didn't follow it. I still did physics and maths. I thought that's what I wanted to do or what would help. Um, and in the end, I realized I was actually quite interested in more of the philosophical type subjects. But I think the 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 principle behind it is a really good principle that, you know, if you enjoy it, you'll probably do better at it anyway. And I think I was so busy trying to second guess what people wanted from me and putting an awful lot of pressure on myself, you know, from a young age to try and, you know, work out what the system wanted and you know you almost never really work it out do you so you're better off just kind of following your heart and doing what feels right and I think that um that was probably early advice that I would stick by um and would you know pass on to other people I I kind of drifted into my career you know what I mean I, I never knew what I wanted to do then you know crikey 25 years later you're still doing that kind of thing you never so it's it's good I mean that's one thing I say to my kids is do something you enjoy, then it's mm. not it's not a chore. You know, if you want to do something, get paid to do it as well. Yeah, brilliant. You know, and it's and you're going to enjoy it a lot more. But it's trying to give them those opportunities and see what's out there. You know, it's so you're in the RAF. Um, I mean, I read your book and you were saying about uh, I was going to ask them about the fear with um, in Morocco. Oh yeah, you caught the wires. Yeah. How did you deal with that? You, you know that that life or death situation. Yeah, I mean, Sarah, would you be able to explain that? Because I, I saw the bits on that as what happened yeah. to to it happening and then the way that you reacted. Yeah. I, um, on the listeners would like to know that as well. Sure. Yeah. So um, it's, it's something I talk about a lot when I give uh, when I give talks. So um, I was fairly early on in my career and I was flying down a valley in Morocco. We were practicing low flying and um, and we, we hit wires. Um, they weren't marked on the map, and we just flew straight through them. Um, and the canopy kind of shattered, and the co- you know the cockpit got very noisy. Air was rushing in, and I was quite young. I think it was about twenty three at the time. And I just remember at that moment thinking, "Oh right, this is me. This is how I'm going to go." Um, and I remember feeling this kind of odd sense of relief that you know I knew how it was going to go, and that it would be quite quick and hopefully painless. So I remember sort of thinking all those things, and then. Um, the captain of the aircraft, he was sat next to each other and he shouted, fly the aircraft, Sarah. 
Um, and that was the sort of moment where I kind of came back into the room, or back into the cockpit and, and flew the aircraft and we landed safely and it was all fine. Um, so, yeah, I, and, and that I use it as a basis of a talk quite a lot now um, to kind of um, make the point that you can really only focus on one thing at a time. And when you've just hit wires, you need to be focusing on flying the aircraft, not thinking about death. Um, and it's, um, you know, quite a, a good metaphor for life and that we often, um, you know, it's a very human thing to do to spend time focusing on things that we don't control or things that probably won't actually happen. And actually we just kind of need to be in the moment and control the controllable. Um, so that was the sort of, you know, the learning I took away from that. Um, and to answer your question about the fear, I just don't think you've got time to feel scared in that moment. I think, you know, for me, fear is actually the, the stuff that keeps you awake at night. It's the kind of insipid, gnawing fear. Um, it's the not knowing what's going to happen. But I think in the moment, I think you do just kind of, you go into fight, flight or freeze. And, you, and, and I don't really remember feeling afraid. Like I say, I remember actually feeling quite relieved because I thought, well, that's it. You know, I, my time's up and it doesn't seem such a bad way to go. It must have been really daunting. Uh, yeah. I'm like, obviously you've had the training as well beforehand, right? Mm. But you couldn't ever replicate that when you, you say like that moment where you do, does it literally flash before you, your life and you think, fucking hell, you know? But. Um, yeah, yeah, it does. Um, but I do think, yeah, it's amazing how, you know, the human does react. Um, I mean, if I suppose I probably went into a bit of freeze because I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to die now. Um but then, you know, the training does kick in. It really does work. Um, and, you know, when you're flying the aircraft, flying is quite a physical thing, you know, so it sort of takes up your capacity. So you're just thinking about flying. So you can't, you don't really have space to think about anything else. So actually, um, you know, it was it was all right. I'd like I say, I think it's probably, it's when you sit and go through it afterwards and go, what if, you know, I think that could be... Um, you know, almost more frightening. Although because I was 23, I was completely arrogant. So at that point I decided that I was invincible um, because if it had been my time to go, I'd be dead. So I was like, well, that's it. You can't kill me, basically, Um, which we obviously all know is not true. Um, So it's amazing how these experiences can, um, can, you can either sort of sit in fear or you can, you know, actually start to think the opposite way around, which probably isn't helpful either. Mm. So what's, what's the biggest risk you've taken then? Uh, I think like in terms of risk to life um, was when I was trying to rescue um, a soldier off the side of a hill in Kenya and he was, um, he'd been um, bitten um, by, well, we thought it was a black mamba. So, you know, we only, we had minutes to get to him basically. Uh, We were told an hour Um, and it was incredibly bad weather. It was very dark. Um, We were having to fly very close to the ground to try and get to him. But also, you know, obviously, if you fly close to the ground, you might crash into it. Um, so we took an awful lot of risk that night. We broke quite a few kind of normal operating rules. We went lower than we should have. We went in light levels that were not fit. Um, because, you know, we thought, you know, he was he was going to die. He was fine in the end, actually, I'm pleased to say. But um, at the time, we thought, if we don't get this guy off the hill, he's dead. Um, and that does sort of, <laughs> your risk appetite goes up, I suppose, when, you, when you've got that kind of thing at stake. Jesus. There's some something uh, on your website and those things that um, everything in life is based around pressure, mm. um, and I think 
as I look at our kids growing up and just things like exams, uh, and by the way, uh, despite this terrible accent, I grew up in Scotland as well. Okay. Um, <laughs> so uh, I know all about hires and everything else as well. But the, but you know, just look at what are the ways you sort of you'd suggest to young people to maybe cope with pressure, whether that be the pressure of exams and life and James's youngest has just done the 11 plus and or James's oldest has just done the 11 plus um things like that what sort of things would you suggest to sort of young people children are made to cope yeah I think that's a couple of things um and I worked this out late in life when I sort of discovered mindfulness I mean I think if I just say you know something like it doesn't have to be mindfulness because I know it's not for everyone but really what I'm talking about is emotional intelligence and learning how to relate to emotions and thought in a helpful way and that and I mindfulness is what helped me do that and I think I learned two things uh, one is um you know when a thought or a or a feeling comes up you can choose whether or not to engage with it or whether or not just to let it go um and focus on something else you know focus on the moment so it's sort of a distraction technique really um and actually, you know, that didn't occur to me until I studied mindfulness that, you know, if if you're if you're thinking about something, you're catastrophizing, you don't have to keep doing that. You can go and think about something else. And that, it's an amazingly simple thing when you realize it, but you almost don't kind of give yourself permission. You go, I've got to keep thinking about it. And your brain thinks that if you keep thinking about it, it's going to give you this illusion of control and stuff, but actually it just winds you up in knots. So I think it's um, learning how to let go of thoughts that just aren't serving you is really helpful. Um, and I think the other thing, and this really, um, I think this probably got me unstuck when I was flying jets. So, you know, obviously watched Top Gun, I went, I want to be a fighter pilot. So I, I actually went off to fly jets to start with. And I was flying the Hawk, um, which is like the, what the red arrows fly. So, it's, you know, screaming around rails at seven miles a minute and I was doing quite well and as I got closer to to passing there was this kind of like I don't know I, it was almost a fear of success that crept in because I thought if I end up being a fast jet pilot how am I ever going to live up to this you know I don't and I suppose we call it imposter syndrome these days we didn't call it that back then but I think there was just this idea of like how have I managed to slip through the net and that constant kind of the the, the higher I set the bar the, lo- the further I've got to fall um and so in the end, I, you know, kind of bottled it and ended up, you know, um, you know, failing and ended up flying helicopters. Um, but I think what I now realize is that this, um, it's not acute pressure, it's more that chronic pressure and it just sort of sits and gnaws away at you. I think I just thought I can't deal with this. Um, but actually you can, and that's another mindfulness technique I learned, which was just sitting with an emotion um, and, you know, it's not to say that we want to, you know, self-sabotage or sit with self-pity, but if you can just learn to sit with an emotion and almost kind of grieve a bit and go, God, this is hard, you know, and I'm scared all the time that I'm going to fail and actually just allow yourself to feel that emotion as opposed to pushing it away, um, then in some ways it sort of loses its power over you. Um, and I didn't know any of that stuff back then. So I just thought I've got to do something to get rid of this fear. So I'll fail, you know, and that means I don't have to live with the fear anymore. So I think those two kind of things, um, are, you know, if you can learn that um, when you're a bit younger, then you know you've you've got an amazing framework to be able to deal with what life throws at you. So is that kind of you allowing yourself to feel and I think because I've had some um, good success at work right lately, and um, one of the things I constantly sit and go, "How did I manage to get here?" Mm-hmm. and um, and do that, but that. Actually, being allowing yourself to be afraid, I think, is that that sort of what you're saying? Yeah. I think that's 
my goods. And um, fortunately, I get to chat to him quite a lot about these things. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, that, I think that's brilliant. Just I've never heard it expressed that way. Sit with your emotion and allow yourself to feel it. Mm. I don't, yeah, I like that. Is that what you is that what you mean when you say when you talk about choices? Um, yes, yes, I suppose it is actually. Um, I think you know you can choose you can choose how you interact with an emotion. So you can either choose to let it go because it's not serving you, or you can choose just to sort of acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. And I think there's, there's, that's that's the two things that you can do. But what we often do without realizing it is we either try and push it away, which means it just sort of shouts louder. Um, or we feed it, which also doesn't really help us. So it's learning how to deal with an emotion that's just, it's a, kind of, it's a very light touch. And um, that's why, you know, it takes a while to kind of get your head around. And that's why I practice mindfulness. Um, but once you do that, you do feel quite sort of strong in your ability to, you know, I've got a way of dealing with whatever comes up. And I could choose to let it go or I could choose to sit with it. Exactly. I think if you get on top of something like that, it makes life a lot easier, right? But it's, so I'm mean, like, sometimes someone will do something and I know it's really pissed me off, but they haven't, I don't, whether they've intended to piss me off or not, but it's my reaction, which is making me feel like how I feel. Yeah. And I know that's now my problem, but it doesn't make it any easier. You know, it's, it's yeah, yeah. It's, and how to deal with that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And like you say, it doesn't make it easier. So it's not that, you know, you're, you're perfectly entitled to feel pissed off, like you say. Um, but um but yeah, I suppose it's kind of understanding that no one really puts a gun to your head and makes you feel something. Um, it's okay to, you know, if you have to um, spend a minute kind of going, oh, that feels a bit rubbish. So that's totally fine. But I guess, yeah, it's, I guess one of the things I learned again late in life was that I didn't need anyone else to be my witness, you know. So when I was feeling, you know, upset or in pain or whatever, I needed people to validate my feelings so that I could allow myself to feel these things. And it was when I learned, I went, I can sit with my fear or I can sit with my anger or I can sit with my frustration and go, yeah, it's a bit crappy feeling like that. So I think that's, you know, an amazingly kind of, um, you get great self reliance uh, when you realize that you can be your own empathetic witness. If that makes sense. I, I was going to ask that because you, there's a quote in one of the, um, uh, little videos you've got in terms of for for your speaking um, business, the the feeling of not being liked. All of us want to be liked, and I I think younger people today and kids, social media I think is a massively or just a huge impact, whether it's good or bad. Is that how would you sort of speak to people about saying you, that feeling of not being liked and how to cope with? that feeling because it's not always the case and then maybe some of the good and bad side of social media from your opinion yeah okay so I think the first thing I would do is uh, there was I assumed that because I was worried about not being liked that was a sign that I wasn't likable you know so often we think well there's no smoke without fire so if I'm thinking this or I'm scared of it it must be true um the reason we're thinking this is because we're social animals and we you know it's a it's a primal thing that we want to be liked so it's not we almost kind of read too much into it. Um, and I think what I would say is it is a symptom of being human that we want to be liked, um, which means everybody else is going through it too. And they are just as scared as you are. It's just that we don't talk about it because, you know, you, of course you wouldn't because you would feel like if you said that you'd be a social pariah. Um, so I think it's, again, you know, I use the word forgiveness a lot, but it's forgiving yourself for being scared of that um, and acknowledging that, you know, actually you're not alone. And if, 
you can you can almost use it to bond more with people because you realize well if i'm feeling this i bet you other people are too um and you can almost use that and um, i wouldn't i'm not trying to use fear to diminish people but actually it's quite a bonding emotion because we all feel it um and so you actually rather than feeling isolated which is you know when you when you're scared of not being liked the temptation is to feel all alone but if you can Flip that a bit and go. Well, everyone's scared of not being like that. Suddenly, you don't feel alone, um, and so it's almost taking care of itself by just kind of embracing the humanness of it. So, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, really good. Like, something I obviously tell the kids as well. But and I've kind of said to more so my son because my daughter doesn't listen to me at all. But <laughs> it's you can only control two things: your thoughts and your actions. Nothing else. So don't. And when you're saying there about uh, trying to be liked is you can't make someone like you because mm. you can't control their thoughts or their actions. So just be you. And it, oh, he's, only, bloody hell, he's only 11 anyway, so he hasn't got to worry about that kind of thing. Yeah. But it's because he's moving more into a bigger school next year and stuff like that. It's just not because even now he's saying, oh, hopefully I'll have friends. Of course you yeah. can have friends, you know, but you've got to take the pressure out of it and just enjoy it for what it is, you know. Yeah, exactly. And like, you know, gosh, every parent, I mean, you know, my son's eight. Um, and, you know, I can't think of anything more heartbreaking than the thought that he wouldn't have friends. You know, I would, I would, you know, there's, a, I've got a real urge to kind of just want to protect him and make sure he's got loads of friends. Um, but yeah, so, you know, I totally get why that is something. And it's so important when you're that age, you know, as you, I think as I got a bit older, I just kind of learnt that it wasn't life or death. But at that age, it's so, so important. So yeah, completely understand. And I think the other thing, um, and this is a bit of a cliche, but it turns out to be true. If you don't like yourself, you can't expect other people to like you. And probably without realizing you will exude kind of this don't like me because I don't like me. And I didn't realize, you know, I could be quite prickly for a long time. And it's because underneath it all, I didn't actually think I was very likable myself. So I had to kind of almost, you know, self-love and all that kind of stuff is actually quite important. Well, I think it's uh, contagious, isn't it? I'm like, if, if you if you walk into a room and happy, then it's going to bring other people up as well, and likewise, they're going to pick up negativity as well. You know, so it's smiling when times are tough, you know, and dealing when, especially being in the military, I would have thought you deal with adversity, but you still have a smile on your face because you can't change it. It's yeah. So you might as well muck in and get through it. Yeah, I think so. I think humour can um, can really help. Um... Because I think humor adds a lightness. So you can't, you almost can't be too invested in something. You know, often we attach an awful lot of meaning and attach a lot of ourselves to a feeling. But if you can make a bit of a joke of it, then I think it helps you to just kind of disengage a bit. Um, and then also, you know, it can be quite a kind of, I suppose, quite a bonding thing if people are kind of just laughing along. But I think also, Every time you go through something a little bit difficult, you are you're getting stronger. Like it really is true. Um, and so, and now that's one of the things I really talk about. I didn't realize in the military, you know, obviously we've been trained all the time and we're going through quite difficult, um, you know, a lot of difficulty. And so I now do have a confidence that I, you know, a lot of people go, how do, how do you, how do you just know you're going to be okay? And I suppose it's because I went through lots of experiences and I lived through them. So I think you can take a bit of comfort that if this is hard right now, I will be more confident the next time um, I, you know, encounter something like this because any 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 time you survive it, you're you are literally getting stronger. So, can you teach that confidence from the outset? Do you reckon are we all, have we all got it? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think I probably 
was taught confidence by my parents in terms of like they believe me and they you know one of the words I like to use is could as opposed to should um, and I think they with a with a maybe they didn't realize it or maybe they did but I think they were very good at saying oh you could do that as opposed to saying you should do that you know how it just a very subtle change of words can suddenly go from possibility to obligation um, so I think I did get that a lot from my parents, from the way that they raised me. They were just sort of, they were, you know, they were big sky thinkers, I suppose. Um, and then I think also just gaining that confidence that when you're in a little bit of discomfort, you're a little bit scared or you're under a little bit of pressure, whatever it is, you just get through it. And every, and then the next time it's just a little bit less scary. So I think that those two things um, were quite you know important. Obviously, we don't all get to choose what our upbringing was like, but we all can choose to lean into a little bit of discomfort, you know, just pushing ourselves a little bit more than we want to. Every time we do that, we're training our brain that we actually are quite strong. It's almost like a stretch, I guess, isn't it? Because as you, as you do it, it then gets bigger and bigger and you've got yeah. more resistance to it as well then. Absolutely, yeah. So the more, um, you, the more you operate out of your comfort zone, the bigger it gets because, you know, you're just always increasing what you're comfortable doing because mm -hmm. you just sort of, you know, increase your yeah appetite for that kind of thing. So absolutely. Slightly different track. Yes. As a, as a person, what are the major values and principles that you live by and like you won't tolerate from others? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I have got, um, well, it's a bit, it's a slightly rude word, so I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say this or not. Bring it on. So don't be a dick. Yeah. <laughs> um, now I will say that I fail to live by this value lots. <laughs> um, so it's an aspirational value, but also don't become the dick. So if someone's a dick to you, um, for a long time I thought, oh, well, that's it, all bets are off and I can now tell them. And then suddenly you realise you've snatched defeat from the jaws of victory and you've become the dick. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I think like, you know, don't be a dick and don't become the dick. If someone is, you know, behaving badly to you, um, then... You know, you still have a choice how you respond to that. Um, so those would be those would be my non-negotiable valuables, my non-negotiable values. I'd like to think I'm a bit tolerant of other people doing it um, because I've been there so many times and I've failed to live up to my own values. I'm almost relieved when other people end up kind of acting out. I'd like to think I could be quite um, empathetic of that because I've definitely. <laughs> Um, made lots of mistakes in my life and I've behaved in ways that I'm not proud of. Um, so, yeah, I, th I suppose that's, and I guess maybe that's another value is just don't judge people too harshly because you don't know what's going on um, and nobody wants to be disliked. Nobody yeah. nobody wants to be the dick, right? You know, you don't get out of bed to be the dick. So if someone is, then just spare a moment and think maybe uh, maybe something's going on that they're, that, you know, they don't even understand yet, but they need some help. Yeah, some people are just dicks, though, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't, th I don't think they are. I don't think we're born like that. You know, I think you, if you are being a dick, you're probably in pain in some way. You know, you're in some emotional pain, or you're scared, or something. You know, I, I do think that we're good, and I think we want to be good, actually. Dolly, just following on, there was a recent post one on LinkedIn. You were talking about bottle butts, yeah. um, which is kind of a, a similar, similar thinking to what you're just sort of saying there. Uh, um, and I thought that was quite interesting, actually, to your point on there's, there's potentially something going on with that individual because their their focus for breaking your bubble, they think is more important than than there is to, for you because you need to focus and keep on something. Can, can you maybe explain 
to people what what your bubble butt is and what a bubble what the bubble reason the thinking and the focus was yeah. for but then i like the fact that the why that we need to think about maybe why that person's interrupted or become the bubble butt um yeah i think is a great thing yeah no i am um, so so we had we used to call people bubble butts in the military because when you're in the flying world um you've got this thing called a mission bubble, right? And, you know, we just refer to it as that. So when you're briefing um, and when you're flying and when you're debriefing the mission, you're kind of in this mission bubble and everyone knows not to bother you because, you know, you don't want to kind of um, get distracted from um, from that task. But there was always someone who would come up to you and say, I know you're in your bubble, but... And then they would just talk to you about something which is completely, uh, you know, not at all important as far as you were concerned. And you'd always be like, if you're saying the words, I know you're in your bubble, just don't say them. Just don't burst my bubble. But anyway, but they would. And, the, you know, the thing is, you'd often kind of roll your eyes and then go, okay, what is it? And then you'd end up, you know, talking to them about it. But I think, um, you know, the thing that I, um, uh, I thought actually, interestingly, I was saying this to my partner, I was saying I would never be a bubble butt. And he sort of looked at me and went, I think you have been. And that's the thing. We we never think we're bubble butts. We always think other people are bubble butts, but we probably all have been because when we're stressed, the brain will prioritize everything as urgent and important because it kind of operates on a better safe than sorry. So in that moment, you will, you will think you, that, you know, that the, your life is ending or the world is ending and that it's more important than anything else you've got going on. And therefore it's worthy of interrupting someone um, because we're not very good at prioritizing when we're stressed. Um, we're not designed to prioritize that well when we're stressed because we're designed to just kind of go into threat mode. So I think it's worth realizing that it doesn't mean that um, we can't protect our own bubbles and say, actually, now's not a great time. Um, but also it's just having that awareness that you know, they probably genuinely think it's really important. And urgent. <laughs> and I just love the the bubble butt. The yeah. bubble entendre just got me. Loved it. <laughs> As a childish 49-year-old. So. Exactly. No, but I think it's important because so, I, I always use that in a speech because people like the phrase bubble butt. And, and what's, what I love is after I give a talk, you know, often it'll be a senior leader who comes to me and go, I'm a bubble butt. And I'm like, look, if you've got the awareness to know that, that's brilliant. Um, that means that you can maybe do it a bit less. So, and if yeah. it makes it more palatable to say it because it's a silly word, then fine, you know, it <laughs> doesn't matter. No, good. I, I, it's important. Yeah. Go ahead, James. I was going to say, it's the awareness, isn't it? And having, or being aware of the awareness or habits, you know, it's just knowing that, because exactly what you're touching, sometimes people think what they've got to say is more important than others without actually putting yourself in something like the empathy behind it and saying, actually, they're out in the middle of something I'm not going to disturb, or you can see they're going for a tough time. Now's not the time for me to unload, kind of thing, you know? But it's <laughs> my, my new best phrase. So I'm going to use that in work. So, and if anybody questions it, you can go, no, no, you're interviewing my bubble butt. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and I guess this comes back to the kind of question on social media as well. That I think the, the people create a bubble for themselves um, that isn't necessarily real or um, real life, and and I think they project one or two seconds. There was a a colleague of mine; his daughter was telling me about be real, and I was like. What what's that? And apparently, you take one picture a day, front and back camera, of the same instance. It's not a selfie, and it's supposed to show what's going on in your life at that moment. And you can only do it once a day. Mm. Um, 
And it was kind of like, it's just, it's just the epitome of social media and all the things I think that are wrong with it, that all it does is just show the one really pleasant moment of a particular time. And, um, that's not a real sort of representation of life. I mean, I think when you talk about, you know, um, yeah, you know, there's so many great quotes, by the way, Sarah. I loved reading your stuff. Uh, backed by science, proven in combat. Um, uh, how to, you know, what was it? All humans are driven by fear, um, and that's the fear you need to understand. Um, the, and that fear of missing out, I think, is the thing that most kids feel at the moment. Um, that um, FOMO, whatever you want to call it, but that that's the bit that kind of gets me at the moment. In terms of addressing the fear, I know you said try and hold it, understand it. Is there any other sort of techniques and stuff that maybe for for younger children, younger younger adults that can think about those sort of things, especially with things like fear of missing out? And yeah, I mean, gosh, it is really hard, right? Um, and I'm conscious of this because when I left the military, um, social media suddenly became you know one of the ways I was doing a lot of my marketing. I mean, mostly on LinkedIn, but also on Instagram. And, um, you know, I do find myself doom scrolling on Instagram more than is very healthy. Um, there are some quite funny things on there. It's quite hard to drag yourself away sometimes. There are. Um, and, you know, and I do, I kind of like, am I a bit braggy on social media? You know, so, so I, you know, I, I'm not judging here um, because I've probably done all the things that I would criticize, you know, on social media for. Um, so I think, you know, it is hard and it's, you know, it's weird, you know, my son's eight, so I'm going through this, like, you know, when when will I give him a phone and when will I, you know, allow social media kind of thing. Um, year six. So again? <laughs> year six. Year six, okay. Um, but the thing is, is that uh, I suppose it's it's not going anywhere, right? And, you, you know, we can't sort of, mm. can't ignore it. Um, what's a good way to deal with it? I, I definitely don't have a clever answer for that. Um, I think... Certainly, you know, as a parent, I'm quite conscious of setting a good example. So just having a break from it, I think, I'd, you know, I, I, um, I don't think we can say don't go on social media, but I think, you know, just having really healthy breaks and putting the phone down and having kind of family time or time with your friends where you're just kind of not on it, I think is probably a good start um, so that you're not kind of hostage to it. And I think understanding that, um, you know, it's all very cleverly organized so that you will you know you're is addictive so you're you're you will feel like a genuine fear about putting your phone down and not being able to look at it but these are all emotions that you can tolerate and you you will learn that you can live without it um i mean i think the interesting one was someone said to me oh i can't wait to go on a plane because um that's the first time i can turn off my social media and i was like is it is it your social media have we told ourselves this um so yeah i Honestly, I mean, I'd love to know what you think because I just uh, I think it's a genuinely quite a difficult thing to manage, and I um, I think we're all going to be working this out for a while, right? I mean, what do you think? It scares the life out of me. More so from my daughter's perspective because already she's only six. Not so much, but the comparisons, you know, and it's like, well, just be yourself. Don't worry about. So and so, so I need to do that. I need to, and it's like I think some of the images that are there aren't the right images to portray, and it's not a healthy aspiration sometimes. And it's, but then she's only six. I don't want to put negative thoughts in her head as well at the same time. So 
don't read that. That's rubbish. You, you can't put that thought in there because that's being negative. No, I don't want her to do that. But it's, I'm very old fashioned, I think, the fact that I'd rather they're outside playing sport mm. or exploring or doing something, you know. That said, exactly what you said, it's not going away. Um, and it's never going to go away. And it's only going to get more and more advanced, I think. Especially like the likes of AI and stuff, but that's another story. That that really does scare me, the AI side. But I, yeah, it's it's a bloody minefield without a doubt. And you want to do the right thing, but I don't know what the right thing is. Mm. And you see, I think as well with once it's there online, it's always going to be there online. It's not going to go away. So if someone says something or does something. That's permanent. Whether you delete it or not, it's still stored somewhere. And you've got to be very aware. And I think it goes back to earlier about not being a dick. If you want to say to someone's face, don't put on a bloody message or online or something like that, you know, or don't sit behind don't sit behind a computer and say, if you've got a problem, say it to my face. We can have a conversation, you know. But yeah. Put it this way, I'm very glad there wasn't camera phones when I was fifteen, sixteen, seventeen and and Facebook and everything. So I, I certainly wouldn't be working with the company I'm working for, but <laughs> yeah. but I, it's for me. I, I I just tell my girls exactly what James has just said there. That think about the ramifications if you take a picture, for example, mm-hmm. um, you know that you send that to one person and they could send it to thousands. Mm. Um, so just to try and try and position yourself, or don't don't let yourself be open to be. Um, taken advantage of but also as well the security side of things really scares me the um, the misuse of content and pictures so mm. we try to get them in the same way that you did as a child on the stranger danger type stuff mm. and in terms of not getting in cars and I think that's the kind of things that I'm talking to my daughters about that that cyber security and their personal privacy is, is incredibly important in the same way that you don't get into a stranger's car um, you know, so but they don't yeah, start putting a fear in their head, though, do you? By explaining something that might not be there in the first place, and it's like, well, 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 yeah. that's kind of why I use this stranger danger piece. That you know, it it is quite a scary thought of somebody. But you, you know, my youngest, um, six or seven, she was sort of noticing that something went on at a car one time. It turns out it was just a a kid that didn't want to go with her dad. Which, um, but you know, it's. Awareness and being aware of those types of things, I suppose, is going to help. But, but um, I suppose that's where occasionally a little bit of fear can be a good thing. Yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. I guess it's a balance, isn't it? Um, and you just hope that you're, yeah, striking the right balance. But you're saying about phones. I'm like, my son wants a phone. It's like, well, practically, he's going to need one at some point because he's going to be walking home from school, so he's going to need to have a phone. But then, I'm then giving him something else to worry about. With having the phone, it's like it's. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I I worry about not being a good dad, mm. and it's like, am I then a bad dad for not letting him have a phone, or am I being a good dad for having a phone? But I don't know. I don't know. I think year six is a good year because of the walking from school bit. Um, that just that little bit of reassurance and confidence. So and and there's a load of apps that you can monitor everything. So. I might take the cork off his aeroplane as well then. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, can I ask one more question? I, there was a wonderful thing that I didn't get to the details of. Uh, winefulness. We've talked about mindfulness and everything else. You've got something, winefulness, which is a corporate day that I just think that sounds bloody brilliant. Yeah. Right. What's that about? Um, I was really proud of this. So, yeah, so I'm a mindfulness coach um, and I kind of made the leap that actually there was a lot of stuff that we were learning in the cockpit, which is actually quite mindful, you know, fly the airplane or fly the aircraft. That's really just bringing your attention back to the present moment. That's actually what mindfulness is. So I was like, oh, wow, that's really interesting that you can do that in a, you know, in the cockpit of an aeroplane. I wonder where else you can practice mindfulness. Because uh, I was thinking about how to make it more accessible because not everybody wants to meditate for five hours a day. So I was thinking, like, how can I make mindfulness something that is, you know, for everyone and show how accessible it is and how relatable it is? And I happen to love uh, wine tasting. Um, my twin sister moved out to Australia when she was 21 and she introduced us to this idea of like, you don't go to the pub, you go to a vineyard and you drink nice wine. Um, and ever since then, whenever I go on holidays, I always try to go to wine regions and I go wine tasting and it's just something that I love doing. Um, and when you think about what you're doing when you're wine tasting, you're massively in the moment, you're, you know, and you're using all of your senses. Um, and one of the things I learned when I was training to be a mindfulness coach was a red, a raisin meditation. So you get like a raisin or a chocolate and you, you eat mindfully. So I was like, well, hang on a minute. You can drink mindfully as well. So that's kind of where it all came from. And I thought it'd be a really fun way to give people the mechanics of mindfulness, you know, so actually what is it? You know, how do I actually practice it? And I'm like, well, you can practice it right now with this glass of water um, because it's essentially a dance between noticing where your attention has gone and focusing it where you want it to be. And you can do that with literally anything. So why not do it with a glass of wine? So that was kind of the idea. Um, um, yeah, pleased to say it's, it's starting to take off a bit as well, which is great fun. Yeah. Kids, if you're listening, obviously not yet, but... <laughs> But you can do a, a, a J2O, yeah, there's yeah, exactly. a J, J2O mindfulness, fruitfulness. Absolutely. Or a raisin meditation or a chocolate, you know, to, do it with your favorite treats, basically. Do people get more mindful as the more wine goes in? Yeah, they do. I think you've got a limit of about three wines before no one's paying any attention. <laughs> um, but, you know, and that's the thing as well. I think often, you know, when it's sort of wellness related, often... When you go in to do, talk about wellness and resilience, it's almost a bit depressing. Um, and you're like, how, how is it that we're talking about wellness, but we all feel so sad? So I kind of want to just inject a bit of fun into it and go, you know, it's all right to have a glass of wine and enjoy it. You know, why not? So, yeah, I think that was the idea. What's the go-to wine then? French. <laughs> um, I mean, I do love English, uh, English wine, actually. I love English sparkling wine. And I could probably drink sparkling wine for the rest of my life and never get bored of it. Um, but I do like um, I do like Bordeaux. I do like um, yeah French wine from Bordeaux, and I love um, white Burgundy as well. So yeah, um, but you know I'll try most wines. Oh, that's the thing because I've been to lots of wine tasting regions, and you know recently we were in Santorini, and they've got fantastic wine out there. Um, so I would go back to an island that does volcanic wine i.e you know the because they grow it in a slightly different way mm -hmm. um it's not the vines don't go up they stay um nice and close to the ground um for lots of reasons which i won't um sort of go into but um yeah i mean that's the beauty of it you don't have to confine yourself to one wine because there's so many delicious wines out there to explore and to discover they're getting stronger though aren't they the climate change and it's like it's almost like drinking the glass of oh, what the port now but 
Yeah, especially, well, yeah, with a hot country. Don't see that as a problem, James. It's, uh, no, not at the time. It's the next day for me you now. Uh, I've only got to look at a glass of wine and my head is gone. But Just uh, wrapping up, that's all right. Um, what would you like your legacy to be? Oh, that's a good question. Um, what would I like my legacy to be? So I've kind of got a thing about being dispensable, which almost flies in the face of having a legacy because I sometimes think, we want a legacy for our own reasons. And if you were like truly enlightened, then does it matter? Um, you know, if people don't remember them, um, does it matter? As long as their lives are good and, you know, whole and all the rest of it. So I suppose what I'd like my legacy to be, um, actually for people to not need me, I guess, and for them to have self-confidence and self-belief um, and to, you know, believe in themselves. I think I've seen so many people that just doubt themselves all the time. Um, so I'd like to find a way to share the tools for people to have self-belief and self-reliance, I guess. Do you think people doubt themselves because of fear, going back to that? Yeah, I think it's quite a human thing as well. You know, I think actually it's quite good to have a bit of doubt. You don't want to be totally up yourself and think that you're perfect, right? Yeah. Um, but I just, yeah, I suppose maybe it's a little bit of nostalgia as well for when I went through a time where I was feeling particularly low and didn't really like myself very much and I don't like thinking of other people going through that so I just want to um I, I want them to know that it's that it, they're lovable and you know it's they're it's okay for them to to you know to be loved um I don't I yeah I probably haven't given a very profound answer there but um yeah I think that's what I want to I'd want to try and leave behind. Uh, but I think mostly it's just having belief in yourself, like self-trust, mm -hmm. uh, I think is so important. And I, I do sometimes worry that the world is leading us away from that because, um, you know, people are always, you know, there's a diagnosis for everything now and everyone's got some kind of disorder. And I'm like, well, maybe you're just human and it's kind of normal to be anxious or maybe it's normal to be sad. And I'm not trying to diminish or say that there, there aren't these mental health conditions. But I think we almost feel there's something wrong with us all the time. We've got to fix ourselves. And I just kind of worry that sometimes we are um, moving away from this ability just to just to be able to tolerate a little bit of difficulty and have faith in the fact that we're not broken and we don't need to fix anything and we'll, and we'll get through it. Um, so, you know, and also with when you see the way that organizations uh, prioritize well-being, which I think is really, really important, um, but also no employer can make anybody feel happy um you know ultimately this is something that you do kind of have to find for yourself um yeah i suppose i want to try and help people find that balance um and and find that self-reliance and realize that actually you've got everything right here that you need really that doesn't mean that we can't support each other doesn't mean that we don't you know rely on people when we need them but ultimately everything you need is right here um, and I think if you could have that faith in yourself I'd be pretty happy um, if I could give a few people that <laughs> no I really really appreciate that it's um I've learned a hell of a lot on talking to you it's certainly things that I need to think of as well and go back and think about it's no I really enjoyed that thank you very much Oh, thank you. I've really enjoyed speaking to you. It's, um, I, you know, really appreciate it. And I think I said to you beforehand, um, it's not quite the same, but um, I, um, I started writing letters to my son. And it was actually the first time I deployed, and he was baby, so I knew, you know, I couldn't say any of these things to him because he didn't understand anything I was saying. And I've kind of kept it going. And so every now and then, every few months, I'll write a letter 
to Arthur so that after I'm gone, you know, he's he's got it there. And most of the time it's just it's just me saying, I'm really sorry I messed that up again, you know. <laughs> I'm not a very good mum, I'm trying my best. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think that ability to be able to um I guess that's the legacy bit as well, isn't it? It's just um being able to um tell make sure that the people in your life know um just how incredibly lucky you feel to have them there, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that's one thing I've learned that tomorrow's not a given. Yeah. And it's, and you've got to make the most of what you can and not take things too seriously as well because ultimately it doesn't matter, you know. And I'll quite happily be an art, not an arse in a bad way, but I make an arse myself just because it's, it doesn't matter anymore. And I used to have been really self conscious. Now it's got to the point I've gone, too far the other way that it drives me white bossy. It's like, but it's, yeah, I don't know. It's, yeah, you, you've got to enjoy it and life's too short. Just make the most of it and don't sweat the small stuff because absolutely. you can't change it anyway, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Good advice. Yeah, well, <laughs> I need to listen to my own advice at times. <laughs> no, thank you very much for your time. I really, really appreciate that. So great to be here. Thank, thank you. My pleasure. Remember to follow, subscribe, review. It really does make a big difference to us on the podcast. So please, if you could take some time to do that, it would be much appreciated. Until next time, see you later.